Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Quiet. Good afternoon and welcome to the 757th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM and our 11th year on the air. I'm Paul and today we're broadcasting live from the historic Exeter Town Hall in Exeter, New Hampshire. And it's the uh, 2018 Exeter UFO Festival and the 53rd anniversary of the 1965 incident at Exeter. Okay, and before we introduce our distinguished panel, let's acknowledge the organizers of the Exeter UFO Festival, which raises funds for children's charities here in southeastern New Hampshire, the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club, uh, and the invaluable assistance of Seacoast Saucers of New England and Granite Sky Services. Okay. I'm going to pass the mic uh, down and very quickly ask the speakers to introduce themselves, and we will continue from there. I will tell you, we didn't get to this before, but there's a, a mic here for anyone from the audience who would like to ask a question, and we'll introduce the speakers, and then you're very welcome to come up and begin questions. We also have questions from listeners from all over the world, uh, which we will state if no one is at the mic. So well, why don't we begin with Jennifer Stein. Hello, I am Jennifer Stein. I just recently presented on Gobekli Tepe, uh, an ancient site in Turkey, and I'm very, very pleased to be here. I'll pass the mic. Hi, I'm Mike Stevens of Granite Sky, and I presented earlier on People Not Proof. Hi, I'm Bob Terrio, and I presented on Walt Disney and their connection with uh, aliens and UFOs. Hello, and I'm Shane Sarway, um, regular guest co-host on, be- on the show, Behind the Paranormal, um, and I'll be presenting on parasitic life forms later on today. My name is Mark D'Antonio. I'm the chief photo and video analyst for the Mutual UFO Network, and uh, I did a presentation yesterday on exoplanets and the possibility of alien life. Good afternoon. I'm Peter Robbins. I'm an investigative writer, and the talk I'll be giving after our broadcast will be on uh, the deaths of key writers, journalists, and authors, and whether or not there uh, was any uh, foul play involved. Hello, I'm Kathleen Martin, and I am MUFONS, Director of Experiencer Research, and on the Board of Directors, and a research consultant to the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for research into extraterrestrial encounters. I'm also the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, whose abduction in 1961 uh, was made public in 1965. And my presentation yesterday was on my investigation of their case and research on their archival records. Good afternoon. I am Chuck Credo. I'm one of the co-founders of Seacoast Saucers. Uh, I'm also the founder of the Galileo Interviews. And uh, we gave a speech yesterday on commonalities, synchronicities, and modern-day contact, what we can learn from experiencers today. And it's a pleasure to be here today. Hello, I'm Valerie LaFasso. I'm an empathic medium, an experiencer, an author, and a co-founder of Seacoast Saucers of New England, along with Chuck.
Okay, thank you all. Let's begin with our questions. If anyone has a question from the audience, please walk up to the mic there. It's right on the right. But in the meantime, let's take one. This is to Kathy Martin. This is from Tasha from Wichita Falls, Texas. And Tasha asks, why do you feel that the Betty and Barney Hill case got such publicity? And did Betty and Barney Hill ever experience any more contacts? Well, you've seen that already. Right. Microphone? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I think that there are many reasons why the Hill case got a lot of publicity. Uh, first of all, Betty and Barney uh, did not come forward initially. Uh, they had a scientific investigation of their events. Many of the scientists who did the investigation believed it was real. Betty and Barney were credible people. She was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. He worked for the post office, but he was also very active in the state of New Hampshire in the civil rights movement and uh, through the Rockingham County Community Action Program that he and Betty helped to set up with a co- on a committee. Uh, and he received an award from Sergeant Shriver for the good work he did. He was also appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission State Advisory Committee. So they were upstanding people in the community, credible people, who underwent a scientific investigation, um, did not want to go for public with their events. It was brought to the public as the result of a violation of confidentiality. Then they agreed to allow John G. Fuller, who was a very well-known author and investigator, to write their book. I think that's another reason. Dr. Benjamin Simon, the doctor who did their hypnosis separately over a period of six months and imposed amnesia at the end of each session so that they could not compare notes and also because some of their sessions uh, were so traumatic that he did not want them to be further traumatized by these memories. So there is a lot that uh, makes their case very credible, including physical evidence that was scientifically investigated. It was the first known case in the United States as well. Uh, and so, and the first brought forth publicly around the world. It was a bestseller around the world. And the movie in 1975, The UFO Incident, starring James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons, appeared on um, network television. It was the movie of the week. So I think there are many reasons why this case receives so much publicity. Uh, in answer to your question about whether or not they had further encounters, they certainly did have sightings after that. And Betty took part in an, ex- in an experiment with a team of scientists to try to call in UFOs. And she was somewhat successful in doing that uh, after a period of about four months of trying this nightly. And uh, so they did have that kind of contact that was documented. Betty, I do believe, also had other encounters. You might want to call them abductions. Uh, she did not remember about a lot about it. She did not want to admit to it uh, because of the criticism that was heaped upon her. And when other experiencers were coming forward with their stories or they were being revealed to the public uh, 
just by uh, the facts such as in Travis Walton case where he was missing for five days. Uh, so that was brought forth to the media. Criticism was heaped upon those people. Uh, they, uh, there were attempts made to discredit them and to destroy their lives, to destroy their careers by certain disinformants. And so that was another reason not to come forward with the information about further contact. Thank you, Kathy. We have a question from an audience member. And just step up to the mic and... Yes. Um, yesterday, uh, close to the mic, please. Yesterday morning, in the first session of the day, Valerie LaFasso and Chuck Credo, among the concepts that they shared, made a reference to um, how fear holds us back from opening up. And today, for me, as I listened to Mike Stevens speak in the first segment, and I heard the comments that Peter Robbins made afterwards, I was thinking more about how the entire subject that we're here to address opens things up to accepting our oneness and thinking about how fear seems to be one of the principal things keeping human beings from opening up to looking at oneness in a new way. I would invite any of the speakers I name, maybe Valerie and Mike, Chuck and, and Peter, to whoever prefers to, how does... Um, what do you feel about how facing fear maybe makes us stronger, opens us up more to more possibilities in welcoming oneness? Okay, uh, we'll start with Valerie LaFosso. Sure. Um, fear, that's, you know, a very touchy subject for me personally. I hate fear, but I'm filled with it at all times. I've had my own issues. You know, I mentioned an experience with my father. You know, it's it's very personal. My father's not with me anymore. It's it's He's so dear to my heart that it makes it even more difficult to talk about, to, to poss- have that possibility of somebody ridiculing it. And I did try to overcome my fear and put myself forward one time recently and I actually had my story shot down before I could even say what it was. I had somebody just completely disregard it and it was very hurtful to me. Um, so it's really hard when things like that happen to want to then go back and do it again and take that chance you know, when things like that happen. So anytime anybody does share their story, you know, I just give them a huge applause for pe- getting through that fear that I can't seem to overcome at this point in my life. And uh, Charles Credo? Yeah, so yesterday we shared a few stories, um, and one in particular story had to do with a young lady who uh, had started to have this contact. She was becoming more spiritual, and then all of a sudden she's in this place where she's had all these experiences, and she pulls over the car and hears this woman scream. She gets out of the car, but she doesn't become reactive. And by reactive, I mean immediately reacting to the circumstance at hand. She doesn't become fearful, thinking someone's going to attack her or somebody's being killed. Instead, she lets go of the fear, and she looks around, and there's absolutely no one there and no reason why anybody screamed. There was no reason why she should have heard that. And she later said that she received a message that that was their way, meaning the visitors, uh, whether you want to call them aliens, the others, whatever, ETs, of testing her, and that led to her having so many more experiences over time. But she's not the only person to talk about how fear impacted that. Uh, We talked a little bit yesterday about how it is everybody wants to um, have an experience, but 
nobody wants to have to deal with the fear associated with that. Uh, how many times have we said we wanted to do something? Uh, a lot of people say they want to sky jump, but it isn't until they get in the top of the plane ready to jump out that they're confronted with the feelings that are involved with jumping out of a plane. Um, I've heard of countless stories, and I would ask anybody else on, on uh, the panel to talk a little bit about stories that might be reminiscent of fear and how they got in the way of experiences. But uh, one thing that we saw as a commonality with a lot of people that, that claim to be experiencers is fear is an obstacle that can get in the way of having that true experience. So I would challenge anybody here to think of a time in your life in which you wanted to do something so bad and you had to overcome that fear and what came out of shedding that fear, the great examples that come out of anything in life. And sometimes I think that, uh, well, I just know, the stories that people have shared with us are about shedding the fear because it clouds our judgment, it clouds how we see life, and it, and it impacts all of the beauty that we can have. So uh, that would be my answer to your question. It's a wonderful question, an important one. All fear, if we take it down to the baseline, is fear of the unknown. Am I going to get sick and get cancer? Uh, are my kids going to turn out okay? Or is the country going to go to war? Um, am I going to fall in love? Uh, is there going to be money left in social security system by the time I need it? If there's one fear that could be boiled down to being more emblematic of fear of the unknown, it probably, uh, as good as any, is the classic alien abduction experience. Nothing in our Western culture, our Judeo-Christian traditions, prepares us for this. Uh, a natural, healthy reaction is certainly, uh, I'm scared, I don't know what's happening. Um, a lot of it has to do with attitude, and uh, is the glass half full, is the glass half empty? At the same time, talk is cheap, and it's easy for somebody to talk platitudes about it. One of the most uh, valuable, invaluable things about a good support group uh, working with uh, an investigator who really is uh, a humanist and tuned into your needs and not just seeing you as a, another case or a bug on the wall that you know they're getting information for their next talk or book um, or a therapist or a loving family or a good relationship with somebody you can simply talk about will accept these things you can get to the point where you still have fear, but it doesn't have you. For me, a great model was my late sister Helen, who brought me into this work to say overnight would be a, a, an understatement within a matter of minutes, sharing with me childhood memories of being taken, sharing those memories more than 40 years ago. My life changed instantaneously in a way. And years after that, um, when Bud started to run, Bud Hopkins started to run what arguably is the first UFO abduction support group, she was a member, and um, valued it very much. I got to attend meetings because I was Bud's assistant, and what I observed over a, a relatively uh, lively and not terribly long period of time was Helen and other people getting to the point of, I can hardly believe this, but this thing that I think about every day uh, that has been running my life to a degree, I now see it's a real thing. It happens. It happens to other people. It happens to me. And guess what? Um, I accept that. It might even happen again to me in my life, but that doesn't mean I'm going to not pursue my dreams or not fall in love or not have fun and not even, you know, have fun at their expense. The hell with them. Um, whether they're good or bad, it shook me up. And um, I'm going on with my life, and I'll be there to support other people. Okay. 
Thank you, Peter Robbins. Uh, I know that Shane Seaway had a comment. Yeah, so what I wanted to say about fear is, well, first of all, one of my, my specialties is dealing with parasitic life forms that attach themselves to people or attack people. And what I've been able to deduce after over 30 years is their ultimate goal is to get you to the state of fear. And the reason for that, I believe, is to hurt individual spiritual growth and as well as all of us as a whole. That is their goal, um, to get us to the point of fear and and to, to hold us down from, from grow, growth. And um, Mike Stevens? Um, yeah, uh, fear is a funny thing. It, and it really depends on how we want to look at it. Are we, what most of us consider and call fear is more of a worry. There's actually, in my opinion, something instinctual fear, something that we react to a situation because we're instinctually, since we're in danger. And I think a lot of that comes into play as well, but I just want to make that differential. Uh, thank you, Mike Stevens. Jennifer Stein. I have a little acronym I use for myself in self-coaching that I'll just share with the listening audience and you here. Um, it's F-E-A-R. It's false evidence appearing real. When I am struck by fear, um, I acknowledge it, pay attention to it, because it might be self-preservation, but in many cases it's not. It's my perception of my reality that's stopping me in my tracks. So once I've evaluated my safety and my emotional safety, then I try to coach myself forward saying, this really might be just false evidence appearing real. I think we all have to be our own coaches in life because few of us have them. And um, fear can be very paralyzing. It doesn't need to be. Thank you, Jennifer. We have a questioner from the audience. And please, right to the mic. Uh, my, my question is for Valerie, um, and my question is, as an empathic medium and an experiencer, how do you distinguish between spirit contact and possible ET contact? Uh, Valerie LaFosso. That's a great question. Um, in my experience so far, so as an empath, I tend to um, feel the core of any being, whether it's human, animal, living, dead, whatever. <clears throat> when ETs show up to me, in a spiritual way, their energetic core feels very, very different than humans. Um, Not negative, not positive, it's just very different. Um, I don't know if it's intention or if it's just a product of what they are, but there's, there's an easily distinguishable difference for me personally. I don't know if it's like that for all um, intuitives who also communicate with ETs, but that's what I experience. Pennsylvania, and Brian has a question for Bob Terrio and Mark D'Antonio or anyone else on the panel. As a lifelong fan of science fiction movies and realizing that not that only so much accuracy is possible in such a little-known field as astrobiology, study of life on other planets, theoretically, I really appreciate it when filmmakers try to get the science right, as in Interstellar. Do you think that producers, writers, and directors are taking more pains to be accurate in the most recent science fiction and alien films and going forward? We'll start with Bob Terrio. Uh, Well, sci-fi was always kind of... uh 
a B-movie uh, movie treatment for many, many years until 1968 when Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey set a new standard and a new high bar for realism and science fiction films. And basically was, even though it was very realistic, the, the core story is science fiction, humans in first contact and later contact with entities or beings from another planet, another galaxy, another world. And I think since then, there's been people who generally aspire to try to, at least in a visual way, make things look as real as possible. And and to, I think Stanley Kubrick really did set a standard for, um, okay, this, this is what we have to try to achieve, this level of realism. And anything below that, um, you're going to kind of fall flat in your face. So I think it set an, a new expectation so that uh, George Lucas with Star Wars and Close Encounters and, and other s films of that nature uh, aspire to, to reach that level of realism in, the, in both the effects. And like with Interstellar, they're also trying to incorporate concepts um, that are up to date with the latest scientific concepts in quantum physics and, and other aspects of, of real science. I'll let Mark answer. Thank you, Bob. Um, as far as the, the science fiction uh, being realistic based on real science, the truth is um, I have seen that there are some sci-fi shows that throw that all, cast it all to the winds and say, hey, whatever brings in people into the theater because the theaters are dying. So they, they go for glitz and glamour and the realism and the scientific accuracy, most importantly, many times gets left at the door. However, uh, as some of you know, I work with a master visual effects pioneer, Douglas Trumbull. Some of you are here at the UFO conferences probably because of his work. He worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey, as Bob just talked about. He was the guy who did the special effects. That was his first job. And then on Close Encounters, he did all the special effects. So uh, the fact that these UFOs had these lights on them, okay, this is a uh, scientific basis from which he drew to produce effects that would be as realistic as as could possibly be expected in such a situation. Obviously, he didn't say, let's go look at the role of UFOs that have landed here before and try and mimic that and make it look real. That's not what he did. Obviously, that was an artistic decision. Uh, Spielberg allowed him to run with that, and that's why the Close Encounters movie was such a big hit. Right? It was very important in our culture. So that all said... There are movies that do this realism. Now, I know there was an astrophysicist named Kip Thorne who was the uh, Interstellar's uh, um, uh, consultant. And I sat with Thorne years ago, and we talked about the time travel possibilities. Now, you think time travel. Well, you know what? Modern science and astrophysics, those things don't kind of go together with time travel because time travel is a, you know, time is a linear concept. You can never go back in certain instances. And Thorne produced an argument to Hawking, Stephen Hawking, and Hawking wrote a rebuttal that was to rebut Thorne's uh, premise that time travel was possible. And uh, as he relayed this, he was trying to be very clear how it went. He wasn't trying to say he believed it was possible. But now we're talking about accuracy, right? And this is where Interstellar got some of its information from. So as in the Interstellar movie, um, as time travel was 
uh, instituted in Thorne's mind, entering a black hole, for instance, you could see your ship coming out of the uh, the uh, accompanying white hole, which is the opposite end, all right, before you actually went into the black hole. And he mathematically showed this as possible. So he said to Hawking, see, time travel is possible. They were engaging in a little bit of uh, intellectual discussion and not trying to assert any kind of a proof. Well, Hawking wrote back to Thorne uh, that, I'll read your thing, but here's why I don't think it's possible. And Thorne read Hawking's response, and Hawking read Thorne's assertion again. And they wrote each other back, and this is Thorne's, you know, what he relayed. And Hawking said, oh, yeah, I think you're right. It is possible. And Thorne said, no, no, you were right. It's not. (laughs) So what does that show you? It shows you that even when it comes to scientific accuracy, the brightest minds on the planet which arguably Kip Thorne and Stephen Hawking, no longer with us, unfortunately, can't agree. So science is on its way. We're getting there. But but in the movies, you know, producers are going to go for the buck. They're going to go for the glitz and glamour. And sometimes the accuracy doesn't get left at the door. In 2001 uh, Space Odyssey, which I saw when I was like eight or nine years old and said, why are monkeys throwing bones around? Okay. And what's that big black thing? Okay. I didn't get the symbolism at the time, obviously, but when it turned into spacecraft, I was hooked. Okay. And I'm watching, you know, the work of the guy that I would end up working with many years later uh, on the screen. I was just hooked. So the accuracy will, will, will come, I think, when we have science to back it up. Right now, we don't have a whole lot of that when it comes to the UFO arena. And there you go. That's, that's my thought on that. Uh, thank you, Mark D'Antonio. Yes, uh, Jennifer Stein. I just wanted to say that the movie Mars with Matt Damien, where he's left behind, thought, I thought was excellent. I spoke to a lot of biologists, and you know, he has to produce his own water uh, by this heating process and separate water out, and he builds a little greenhouse for himself. I thought that was very accurate in terms of biology and space and science and what we now know. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, we have a question from the audience member. Uh, yes, my name is Alex. I'm a resident of Rochester, New Hampshire, and I thank you, uh, panel, for, for being here, for taking the time, and uh, I really appreciate this, this weekend festival. I had a question pertaining to uh, synchronicities uh, or coincidences, whoever you prefer to call them, uh, regarding um, the experiencer phenomenon. I consider myself an experiencer. I don't know if I'm an abductee, but I've certainly witnessed uh, a number of UFOs, and I may have seen some extraterrestrial beings, uh, and I'm still working through that, uh, the trauma of that and the memory of that. Anyhow, earlier this morning, during the conference, I decided to just take a walk to get some fresh air um, while it was sunny out. I just needed to stretch my legs a little bit. And I was walking down the street, and I heard some beautiful singing coming out of a church. And it was the uh, the First Baptist Church of Exeter, also known as the Red Brick Church. I'll, I'll keep this brief. I entered the church, sat down, uh, participated in the end of the program. It was near the end of the service. And I later met the, the pastor. Uh, it turns out that the pastor knew Betty and Barney Hill and that... Uh, the pastor's husband, if I, the pastor's father, if I recall correctly, had once sold a used car to Barney Hill. I'm like, well, that could be just a coincidence. I wasn't actually planning on going to that church. I was just walking through the neighborhood and wandered into the church because I heard some singing. 
would you call that a, a synchronicity? Would you call it a coincidence? And if it's a synchronicity, is that common to experiencers? Thank you. Mm, thank you. Any uh, anyone on the panel care to answer? Uh, yeah, Peter Robbins. I've been fascinated by coincidences, significant ones, since I was young. Um, I think it was Einstein who, um, I'm paraphrasing, but said uh, the universe may look chaotic, but if we really regard it carefully, um, it tends to organize itself. I see significant coincidences as a gentle tap on the shoulder, reminding us that things indeed are more connected than, than we sometimes feel. Uh, sometimes to such a degree, it, it, it can be quite shattering and, and memorable in the extreme. I, I, I like to think there's some kind of random law of physics that governs it. And there's also the thing of pure dumb chance and happenstance. Uh, you know, people win a $100 million lottery, um, and it's just a matter of numbers and randomness. Other times, I can only say, who knows? Thank you, Peter. Anyone else on the panel care to uh, comment on that? Thoughts? Kathy? Anybody? Okay, Jennifer Stein. I have um, actually read some material about this and experienced it in my own life that when I begin to pay attention to synchronistic events, it's almost as if they speed up or I'm aware of more synchronistic events, that one almost begets the other. And if the world is truly a series of vibratory dimensions uh, that we can um, connect with, relate with, and we know physical nature is a matter of vibratory densities and things like this, just the physical world around us, the way atoms bind together and things. And we know, as I told you in my presentation, I've been studying about the electric universe. When you go and meet some of these physicists who are talking about the nature of the electrical universe, they will absolutely talk about the electrical nature of coincidence, that there's actual physics to it. And some of them are writing on this topic. So I would encourage people to uh, explore the electric universe theorists if they're interested more in that topic. Okay, thank you, Jennifer. Anyone else? Okay. Okay, let's um, get to a question now from Zoe in Manchester, UK. And we're going to direct this to Chuck credo at the moment because we uh, we were talking about this before and it's kind of right up his street. Do UFO sightings increase at certain times of the year with certain moon cycles and do abduction reports increase at those times as well? Chuck credo. Yeah, so we were looking at these questions a little earlier to kind of prep for them and I found that one and I think, Kathy, you and I were talking a little bit about this earlier. Um, so I had always had a theory going on, and Paul, you know, you and myself had both talked about the question of uh, do sightings tend to happen more around the month September, October area? And the reason we were asking that question, I mean, we're here because of a very historical event that happened on September 3rd, and then Betty and Barney Hill, September 19th into the 20th, and uh, my own father's uh, experiences happened roughly around this time of the year, and I've taken a large number of reports this time of year in this area. And I was always curious, what does that have to do with anything, and is, that, um, is there any evidence to suggest that? So we started looking at the National UFO Reporting Database, uh, run by P Peter Davenport, and um, obviously MUFON has some other statistics I'd love to take a look at sometimes, but 
Um, they, you can actually break it down by each month across the uh, U.S. and by the year, and you can go right up. And uh, I started seeing a very clear pattern. That pattern was every time that, the, that a year had a higher incident of reports, it was always the same month. That month was June. It was always June. And then roughly in 2003, you see July being that month. And right around 2003, 2004, you start to notice that it goes down in August. And then it's always up in September and October. And then it goes completely down. And then it starts up. And from that point on, July is always the month that you have the most reports. So, Kathy, you and I were talking a little bit about, well, why is that? And I had my own theory, and you kind of confirmed that theory. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Mm Well, we were talking about uh, the states where the most reports are made. And I I spoke about Florida and California. And we were talking about the good weather year-round in both of those places and how more people are outside looking into the sky uh, regardless of the month. And so I thought that maybe that played into it. And we started talking about abduction reports. And uh, we, on my team last year, in, in the fall of the year, were receiving maybe 50 to 75 reports per month. But uh, after January of this year, it began to increase. And now we're receiving an average of about 150 reports every month and wondering why is that happening and I really cannot say for certain why it is I don't know if it's the fact that I've been speaking a lot about MUFON's experiencer research team or uh, if there are actually more cases taking place and more people who are willing to make confidential reports so it's a big question mark in my mind And to touch on that, um, you had also mentioned 2015 and on, there seemed to be less reports. Uh, In fact, July of 2014, in this month. In this year. In this year. uh, Fewer reports than last year. And that's that's pretty rare. I mean, if you look at the statistics and you look at the years, uh, starting in 2014, according to the National UFO Reporting Database, the reports have gone down slightly, slightly, slightly every year. But 2014 seems to, in fact, July was the only month that there's ever been over 1,100 reports given to that site. So it's, it's interesting to see that go down uh, the last four years. Well, thank you, Chuck and Kathy. Uh, anyway, anyone else have a response to a question from, to the, was a question from Zoe in England? I have okay. a question to follow up on that. Oh, uh, uh, right. Do you have a question, sir? Yes, to follow okay. up on that. Yes, please uh, speak close to the mic, if you would, please. Okay. Um, my name is Andy, Andy, and um, I was wondering whether there's any difference in the variations of uh, density of reports in the southern hemisphere. Okay. Good question. Uh, someone like to respond? Someone, please respond. Okay. Mark D'Antonio, how about you, sir? I think what the the deafening silence you hear is in response to the fact that we all live in the northern hemisphere and we're probably not as aware as we should be 
about the Southern Hemisphere reports. So I'll be the one to say that we don't know. <laughs> and sorry. Can't know everything. We try. Thank you, Mark. Uh, honest answer. This young lady had a question from the audience. Hi, my name's Gail. Thank you for the yeah, Real close to the mic, please. Thank you. Okay. I have a trifecta. I'm going to do this real quick. My first question, kind of slash observation, is to Jennifer. Great presentation. I noticed a couple of things uh, on the stones. One was the supposed man bag. You had made a connection to the Sumerians. I was wondering if that has, if you had had any discussion about that and um, the H's. Also, I made a connection with the keystone to Pumapunku. I don't know if that's been discussed. And um, I, I believe that's it for that. The other question was to Paul Eno on the um, nine identified unidentified species of parasites. And I believe I understood it during your presentation you made the reference to small, lowercase gods, possibly Sumerian, you know, the fish gods, et cetera, of that kind of pantheon, we'll call it, if you feel that they are parasitic. And then the other question is to Kathleen Martin. I have a, uh, a very good acquaintance source who, this is back in the 70s, so we didn't have all this high-tech stuff going on, and she is uh, an experiencer, has been experienced all her life, on a whim, called your Aunt uh, Betty, and Betty picked up the phone and said, are you a journalist? So she was very scared and nervous, a young, a young adult, and said, no, ma'am, I'm not, and she basically presented herself to her, and Betty said, I'll tell you what, she lived down in the Merrimack Valley Mass area, and she says, go along the river, so that would be the Merrimack River, and she gave her a site that I'm very aware of that runs in the valley, and sure as she did have, um, she did have contact. So I was wonder, wondering if you ever had that kind of conversation with your aunt about the river systems being a conduit for uh, contact. I think we just filled up the rest of the show. Thank you. Okay. All right. <laughs> So I'll turn it over to Jennifer Stein. Jennifer, if you could say five or ten words about the, the background of Gobekli Tepe. Sure. Uh, just so for our people out in radio, I always wanted to say that. People out in radio land will be able to understand what it is in case they don't know. So I, I don't think that uh, she asked a specific question about the SAGBA text, but I referred to them, and for the listening audience, there is a Sumerian cylinder text. It's in the... Um, Pennsylvania University of Pennsylvania Museum in Philadelphia, and it discusses the ancient cattle and grain story out of Sumer. And Sumer is a culture that developed between the Tigris and the Euphrates River around five, six thousand BC, maybe earlier. We're not sure. And this cattle and grain text discusses two beings. <clears throat> excuse me, two beings. Uh, Lanar and Ashtar who descend from this mysterious place referred to as the Duku. We don't know if the Duku is a high mountainous region or is some kind of craft or is from another planet or some other dimension. It's a, mis a mystery. And uh, these two beings bring uh, farming to humanity. They bring the uh, intelligence of how to do advanced agriculture and the um, 
development of cereal grains into a food source or, or refining natural wheats and grains that were maybe here on the planet but turning them into developed agriculture. So that's called the SAGBA text. Uh, and I'll turn the mic over to Kathleen who can discuss the second part of the question. Okay, thank you, Jennifer. Uh, Kathleen Martin. With regard to the question on whether or not my Aunt Betty and I had discussed the prevalence of sightings of UFOs along rivers, I did have a discussion with Betty when I was in my late teens, probably 18 or 19 years old, and it was sightings that my girlfriends and I had had. Uh, of UFOs along the Merrimack River as we were out driving around at night. And so that is the about the extent of my knowledge. I know that Betty did speak with many, many people who had had UFO sightings in many different areas. Thank you, Kathy. I guess there was another part of the question directed to me in reference to parasitical entities, this is a concept most people are not used to hearing about in paranormal studies. Uh, when you get beyond UFOs, people will think of ghosts, uh, must be spirits of the dead. And, well, it's been a long time since I believed any of that. I think the, the, the truth, at least as we see it, Ben and I, and I see it, is very different. Uh, the parasitical entities, we feel, are perhaps undiscovered science. Uh, they are. They seem to be life forms. Uh, I kept, I've been running into them for the better part of 50 years, and I couldn't really explain them uh, beyond the, the theology of the demon, which such as it is, uh, in poltergeist cases, exorcism cases, things of this kind, until I started thinking of it in a new way. And again, maybe I'm wrong, but the way I see it is that there were at least nine different species of these, and I kind of rank them from the top, which is the wise, and believe me, they're not wise in any way that's going to benefit us. And uh, are they demons or are they evil? Well, what do you mean by evil? I hate to be relativistic, but when it comes to something that's good for the mosquito that sucks your blood, it's good for them, but it's not necessarily good for us, particularly if there's a disease attached to it. So this is, these are relative things. Uh, the wise tend to work alone. Uh, they will at times uh, follow families for generations. And this stuff gets pretty weird. Uh, for example, I was um, in California lecturing in San Diego one time, and there was a woman in, in the audience who just drew my attention. You know, it wasn't anything to do with her good looks or anything. It was just, it just there was something wrong going on there. And she came up to me later and said, uh, I needed to talk to you. And sure enough, she had one of these following, it might have been one of the wise, might have been one of the others, following her family for generations. They were all psychic, all the way down to her grandmother and great-grandmother. They all had these gifts, but you could feel something attached to her. You, you kind of know what these things feel like, and it's not good. So th there's that, and then they kind of move down the food chain, so to speak, to uh, uh, the, the bottom of the line, which is the brats, as I call them. And they're two-dimensional thinkers. So they will act like small children. And one of the most fascinating tendencies of all parasites, particularly the lower echelon that I've found, is that the longer they spend attached to a human host... Uh, or in our world, as it were, because I believe they're, they're multiversal creatures. You know, they come and go. We've seen them working in three or four different worlds at the same time to feed. The longer they spend doing that away from their own worlds, the, the, the more they tend to forget their own origins. 
which I think is really fascinating. I was working with a very famous artist in New York City. I know that uh, Peter knows, uh, Peter Robbins knows who that is, but I, I don't want to say her name. For 25 years, she had one of these, I believe it was one of the brats, uh, throwing her down the stairs and doing all this sort of, sort of thing. And the thing was afraid to leave her because it didn't know what to do or where to go or how to eat. And they need to eat. They, they, these are creatures. They're not spirits. Uh, they're entirely physical in their own worlds, according to my opinion. In the uh, middle echelon, you have the farmers, who will literally farm you or your family, sometimes again for generations. They'll sometimes move from one member of the household to another. We see this day in and day out. And uh, I don't want to take too much time with this, but that's essentially how it works. Uh, there'll be uh, a long exposition of this in my next book that's coming out next year uh, and you, you can stay tuned to our website for that behindtheparanormal.com but th that's essentially it I want to stress that I am the last person and so has Ben to take away personal responsibility I think we're responsible for our own problems uh, I think there's a tendency to say the devil made me do it in order to blame, especially in the modern America, you want to blame someone else for your own problems. But I think it's um, there are uh, these these parasites which will push your buttons, feed upon, feed on you. They learn. They're very intelligent. And uh, how do you fight this? Well, Ben and I call it the Peter Pan theory. Think happy thoughts. Sounds dumb, but boy, does it ever work. We go into poltergeist cases, or I have. I got rid of the worst poltergeist I ever dealt with by using a joke book. Bring in positive energy, especially humor. I always told my boys growing up, always laugh but not at each other. Keep it positive. So essentially, positive energy uh, will cut off the food supply of the negative energy, and you're at, you're at square one to defeat these things. So, okay, so we will... Um now, if anybody else has a comment on that, now, Shane uh, has been working uh, with me for years now, almost 20 years uh, on this parasite issue, and uh, I will try not to trip... Poor Jennifer here. And uh, Shane, if you'd like to comment on that. Sure. So, yeah, I'll be talking more about this a little bit later today, um, 2.45 to 4 o'clock. Um, and I'll be getting really in-depth to what initiates a connection between us and these parasites, you know, what draws them to us. And um, it's actually fre frequency-based, so emotional frequencies, and I'll, I'll be really elaborate with that. Um, and there, once you understand actually what it initiates and allows it to continue, you understand how simple it is to get rid of. And the common techniques that are used by most people to get rid of them don't work. And there's a reason why they don't work, and I'll be discussing that thoroughly later on. All right, thank you, Shane. Uh, we have a question from the audience. Yes. Just please step right up close to the mic there and uh, state your question, if you would, please. Hi, my name's Michelle. I was wanting to ask about orbs and what the different colors of the orbs mean. And what does it mean when an orb changes color? Okay, well, like was that for anyone in particular? For anyone in particular. Okay. Um, anyone want to talk about orbs? That's, because I think th this is relevant to this conference, because orbs seen in the sky, people can call them UFOs. So, Kathy, Kathy Martin. I've worked on several cases where orbs were involved inside people's homes and also in their yards. Uh, I spoke yesterday, I showed a photograph of an orb uh, that was white and had uh, a light blue halo around it. And this orb entered a man's bedroom, flew across the room, put out uh, 
iridescent tentacles and then drove into his body and he was cured from cancer that night. So that was really a benevolent experience. I worked on an experience and Paul is familiar with this because uh, I asked him to become involved in it as well of uh, a pilot at an airport in the southwest and he was observing and taking photographs of red orbs and also he was seeing gray orbs with goat faces inside them and he was having highly negative experiences uh, he even referred to them as demonic because in one case he was in his office he had his shirt off and he felt fingernails tear across his chest and he had bleeding scratches on his chest so uh, both positive and negative uh, thank you, Kathy. Chuck Credo. Yeah, just real briefly. Um, I don't. I can't answer the question. I don't know if anybody here really can. I mean, if we knew what different colored orbs meant, somebody would be writing the next book and probably going on another lecture tour, right? But um, what I can tell you is there are web pages designed just around orange or red orbs alone. You can find Facebook pages where people report just specifically those types of orbs. In Ossipee, New Hampshire, not too far from here, about 50 minutes north on 16. Uh, I read it, multiple reports all in the same night that were given to the police department in Ossipee, New Hampshire. All these people were on 16 going northbound, red orbs following their cars. They pulled over, called police, all in the same night. It's fascinating. My own family have a place in Ossipee Lake, which they witnessed, my brother, my niece, and my nephew, orbs coming down, crisscrossing over Ossipee Mountains, and then going out the opposite direction they came in. And I know multiple people that see these orbs. Uh, actually, it's one of the most common types of sightings that I have probably taken in the area. Just to, I don't know if that answers your question at all. Thank you. I have, a, I have another question. Thank you, Chuck. I just wanted to ask, has anybody um, know uh, about shadow people? They look like people, but they're just like an outline of a shadow of a human being. But can you explain what they are? Well, I, I, I'll just take that briefly. The, uh, the term was invented by a, a good friend of ours, Heidi Hollis, relatively recently. And the, the whole idea of, I've had producers get very upset with me when I describe it this way, but when you have the membranes, or brains, as physicists call it, B-R-A-N-E-S, uh, which supposedly can separate one parallel world from another, uh, our opinion, maybe we're wrong, is you look across it, and it could be someone who looks just like you, but they're going to look spooky and weird because they're going to be glowing because of the plasma and the electromagnetic field that they may be involved in this brain. So they can also sometimes they're dark and shadowy. It could be as simple as that, what we call that simple. It could, it could be as simple as that, that you're simply looking across a membrane into a parallel reality and there's the being. Or there's your Uncle John who died six years ago and, you know, he never died in that world. I mean, it really gets wild. So I think that the shadow people also, and on the other hand, we run into them in parasite cases all the time, uh, particularly little ones. And uh, Shane and I have been, and Ben have been working since 05 on the, the Torrington, Connecticut case, which we call the Litchfield Triangle. And people see these little short things running around in their houses that are just dark, shadowy, human, humanoid-shaped creatures. So we really don't know, but we suspect 
They may be parasitical or they may, they may be just neutral and seen across the world boundaries of parallel realities. Does anybody else have some uh, thoughts on that? Shane, you got your thought on the shadow people? You, you and I kind of work on that. Yeah, so a lot of people associate shadow people with negative entities. Um, I found that's not always the case. A lot of it has to do with what Paul was talking about, um, you know, multiversal type of things and crossovers, or what we call bleedovers. But um, I've, I've seen, I've encountered the shadow people that were actually helpful sometimes. And a lot of times they are negative. Um, and later on in my discussion, I'll actually be showing a photo of one that I took um, that was actually running up on me. So if you guys stick around, you'll be able to see that. Okay, uh, thank you, Shane. Uh, any more comments on that subject? Okay. Uh, we have uh, just a few minutes left in the show. I'd like to get maybe one more brief question in from Katie from California. That kind of rolls off the tongue. As for anyone on the panel, do you find that people who are abducted have increased psychic powers? Anyone like to deal with that? Okay, we'll start with Kathy Martin. Denise Stoner and I asked that question in our 2012 study of 75 people, 50 were experiencers, and 88% said that they had increased psychic or intuitive ability that they believed was the result of their experiences. We also asked that question in a recent MUFON study of, a, of 516 experiencers, and again, there was definitely heightened uh, psychic and intuitive abilities among experiencers, and particularly among abductees. Uh, I have to agree with Kathy, and at the same time, there is um, a factor I can best describe by example. Um, several years ago, um, Jennifer Stein and myself uh, the great uh, UFO writer and uh, a real champion in the field, Robert Salas, and his lovely wife, Marilyn, uh, spent um, some time in the center of crop circle country uh, at the height of the season. It was a very, very special experience for all of us. Uh, Jennifer had arranged the trip. We had one of the local authorities on the ground bring us to three sites uh, on the first day. And um, Wiltshire is so beautiful. Um, I, I expected Jane Austen to ride up in a carriage at a certain point. It, it was overwhelming. And when you're on the ground with crop circles, you don't have the drama of looking down on them. My point being that people have asked me after the fact, did you feel something when you were in the circle? And I said, absolutely. I have no idea, though, whether or not it was the um, phenomenology or a physiology of uh, the enhanced harmonic signature or any other number of factors that I was experiencing or just the jaw-dropping 15-watt bulb reality of, oh my God, I'm in a crop circle. If you have had an abduction experience it um, and you have the psychic abilities sitting there, the same way that, gee, I'd like to draw and paint, but I've never really tried it, but now I think I'm going to. Uh, I'm not sure how that sort of figure ground relationship works, but I do know the stats that Kathy is talking about are correct. Okay, thank you, Peter Robbins. Uh, we have two minutes left, and first of all, I want to thank our wonderful speakers. Stay there, okay? Thank our wonderful speakers for this tremendous exchange today. Thank those who wrote in.
and thank you to the audience. Okay. We are forgoing our announcements today except for one. October 5th and 6th in Leominster, Massachusetts, the Greater New England UFO Conference. We'll be having Paul Eno, Mark D'Antonio, uh, uh, Shane Saroy, sorry about that, um, and many, many other excited speakers at Leominster City Hall, www.newenglandufo.com. I have buttons like I'm giving out to people. If you're interested, we hope to see you there. Okay, very good. So please uh, see all the website links on our site, BehindTheParanormal.com, which is obviously our show site. You'll be able to get, if you wish, there are free uh, 800 hours or more of shows from our past 11 years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, and they're all free again, BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, also, some very interesting links to our, the sites of our speakers, etc. So we will, um, uh, next week, we're going to have... Um, what are we going to have next week? We're going to have an open line show with Shane Searway. That's right. So that's going to be from our studio 